Welcome to the 360th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with fantasy writer Evan Winter, author of the new novel, The Fires of Vengeance. And stay tuned after the interview for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of The Fires of Vengeance. Now stay tuned for the interview. The Reading and Writing Podcast is brought to you by Libro FM. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 185,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a different story one that supports your local community and your local bookstore. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. You can listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Here's your special offer from the Reading and Writing Podcast. Get two audiobooks for the price of one today with your first month of membership with the code RWPODCAST at checkout. This offer is only valid for new members in Canada and the U.S., Check out Libro.fm today. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Evan Winter, author of the new fantasy novel, The Fires of Vengeance, which is the second book in the series that Evan started with his debut novel, The Rage of Dragons. And this is the second time I've interviewed Evan. If you want to hear our first interview, you can check out episode 249 of the podcast. Evan, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, and thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to be back. Thank you. Sure. Well, if someone hasn't heard about your novel, The Fires of Vengeance, yet, how would you describe the novel? Uh, well, I, I want to believe very much so that it is a it picks up right after the Rage of Dragons, and that it is it doesn't just pick up right after the Rage of Dragons, like in sort of the narrative timeline of the story, but it also does that I think emotionally uh, and sort of like. Uh, I want to believe that book two is very much in the same vein as book one, but that we're really broadening the story out and bringing more to the table uh, based on all that happened in the Rage of Dragons. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of a lot of action, a lot of fighting, hopefully some things to, to think about as you finish the book. Um, you know, that's what I would ideally hope and want for readers to experience anyway. That's great. And just to, to, to kind of set the scene, if someone hasn't read Rage of Dragons, I'm trying to remember, I think the tagline was something like uh, Gladiator meets Game of Thrones. Did I get that right or was I wrong? No, that's exactly that's exactly it. Um, that is sort of the, the, the comparables that are, that are used a lot for the book. I think that another one that might be um, might give readers a really good sense of what's happening in the story is uh, uh, if. If we had almost like a John Wick type scenario, but in uh, Bronze Age Africa with magic, I think gives would give people the sense of what they're sort of probably uh, about to step into. Um, so yeah, it's it's a story um, about a swordsman who is grievously wronged and 
to a fault, that swordsman decides that they will have vengeance. And so everything sort of kicks off from there. And there's a, the broader world is sort of a, a, a relatively uh, unpleasant place in lots of ways. And there is magic uh, too. And so that's sort of the this, this scene in which this, this primary narrative takes place. That's great. Well, do you remember the original impetus or idea that led you to write both The Rage of Dragons and now The Fires of Vengeance? I do. Um, it was a couple of things, really. Uh, the first and foremost, most likely, is my lifelong love of the genre of science fiction and fantasy and fantasy in particular and epic fantasy to be most specific. Um, I've always loved those stories and I wanted to tell one of them that I couldn't easily find on the shelves. And uh, part of the reason that pushed me beyond just wanting to tell it and then trying to tell it was that I'd recently, shortly before I started writing, I had a son. And um, and again, I couldn't find stories that, that sort of included in a, in a primary focus. Uh, I couldn't find epic fantasy stories that included a, as a primary focus people who looked like me, who looked like my son, who looked like my family. Uh, and so I really wanted to tell the kind of story that I would have loved to have been able to find in a library when I was growing up and that I could have maybe picked and picked up and really fallen into because I would have had a chance to see someone who reminded me of me, my own family, the, the place I grew up, the type of sort of loose storytelling traditions and, and myths that I'd heard growing up uh, and sort of incorporated all of that into a narrative. That's what I was excited about the most and, and what I wanted to try and do while also fully acknowledging that I, I grew up reading in sort of the Western epic fantasy tradition. So obviously a lot of what I'm doing, it, it fits, fits within sort of that tradition because there's no, there's no escaping that for me because that is what uh, I understand fantasy to be. And so I'm within that tradition, but trying to sort of find a little place for me and mine and, and hopefully uh, the universal sort of human condition means that any reader from anywhere can connect to it on some level. And and given that, as you just explained, writing uh, an, an epic fantasy series that uh, reflected you and people who looked like you and your son, what has been the reaction um, of readers to both Rage of Dragons and now Fires of Vengeance? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think that the possibly one of the most rewarding things is that readers do seem to very much like the book so far. Uh, and that is, that's good fortune for me. And, and it, it feels very satisfying because there's also a massive worry whenever you put something that you've sat for a year or longer working on out into the world. There's that huge worry that people might not like it, uh, might not connect with it, or maybe worst of all, that they might be completely apathetic about what you've done and not care either way. Um, but I, I do feel really fortunate because people seem to connect strongly with, with the work so far. Um, and so what does that mean? I think one of the most satisfying parts of that is that, that the, the connection is mostly focused on just um, the human aspect of the story. Yes, it is a story that takes place, takes place in a second world, Africa. Yes, most of the characters are, 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 would be called black if they existed in our world today. Uh, but in their world, that doesn't quite work the same. So there are these points where on the surface, you could say, well, maybe these are disconnects for the average Western reader and they'll have a harder time getting into it. But what has been sort of probably the most amazing part of the whole experience is that none of that seems to matter because the overarching thing that mattered the most is that it's a story about people and people are connecting with that. So it's the, you know, the, universal, the universality of the human condition seems to be the thing that is working the most. And I can't tell you how appreciative I am to, be, to see that happening. 
That's great. Well, as you mentioned, you grew up reading in the Western fantasy tradition. What were some of those novels and writers that you grew up reading? Oh, uh, Robert Jordan for Wheel of Time. And I, and I even went into some of uh, his work. And I think it was, uh, I can't remember if, it, if, it was, if his pseudonym was Fallon, somebody Fallon, or if that was the name of right. the series. But I, but I even went into some of those. Um, uh, grew up reading R.A. Salvatore, of course, and, uh, and and loving a lot of those books and, and falling in love with, with Dritz as a, as a character and sort of his Dritz's more sort of philosophical bend, uh, bent in the, in the story. Uh, yeah, so... What else did I, did I sort of like just devour? I mean, as I got a little bit older, um, George R. R. Martin and A Song of Ice and Fire was just, that was a mass. It just felt like a, a leveling up in my own personal understanding of what fantasy could be because he was pushing um, to say that it's not always just about good, the good guys versus the bad guys. It's about people doing their best in difficult situations. And I don't know, something about the way that he wrote uh, and he writes uh, really, really captivated me and, and sort of added an extra layers of complexity to what I understood characterization in fantasy could be. And I, and I very much appreciated that as well. Sure. Well, for those listeners who don't know, you originally published The Rage of Dragons as a self-published novel, as an ebook, and it took off, attracted a lot of attention, and then you signed a deal with Orbit, who ended up re-releasing The Rage of Dragons. Given your experience with The Rage of Dragons, how was the writing process for The Fires of Vengeance? Did you feel a lot of pressure on yourself given that you found so many readers who responded and, and reacted well to the rage of dragons? Yeah, that's, that's another good question. And I think that uh, there's all, there's sort of that, that cliche about books, book twos or album, the second album that comes out from an artist being the most difficult. And I did definitely find that the fires of vengeance was a, a difficult book to write. And strangely enough, it wasn't even because of the content or struggling with the actual writing. Uh, like you're sort of like hinting at, it's all the stuff around the writing that starts to kind of intrude on the world of of of, of the writing. So it, book two was definitely hard. Um, having to write to a specific deadline just changes the the way things feel about doing the writing. Um, understanding that there's an audience out there who's reacting online to to book one, and you know if I want I can go in and see a lot of those reactions, both positive and negative also makes writing book two a little bit trickier, especially when you've never had that experience before of there being a public reaction to the thing that you've done in that way. So yeah, book two was um, was hard, uh, but I also think that it was very satisfying to get through it and to get it done. And I, and I, I feel that I've done a better job for me with book two than book one. I do feel like I've learned from the experience of Rage of Dragons and that learning has gone into Fires of Vengeance. Uh, it's up to readers to decide whether they agree or not with that, of course, but I do feel even happier with book two. That's great. Uh, well, you, you mentioned uh, just briefly in your answer there that, you know, there have been some, some people, probably uh, just a few who didn't react as well. I'm curious as a writer, how, how do you handle that? Have you kind of, um, I know some writers just refuse to look at uh, um, online reaction that's that's lukewarm or even negative. I'm curious about yourself. I mean, if you read something like that, how do you go back to the computer and not let it impact you? Yeah, again, that's another great question and a tough one, I think, uh, having to sort of pour your soul out on the page as best you're able and then have people react to it. 
But one of the things that I that I firmly at this stage believe, I'm willing to be either uh, proven wrong or, or learn something new so I think differently, but right at this moment as we're speaking, my current belief is very much that um, it's almost impossible to objectively rate or measure something like the quality of writing. If so much of it depends on the, who the writer is writing for, the intended audience. And the intended audience brings a whole slew of baggage to, to the reading of any material. They bring their background, their class, uh, um, their culture, uh, you know, their political perspective. They bring so much to the, to the writing. And so my goal is always to try and write for myself, to write something that I will love and adore. Um, and that does two things. Number one, it armors me against criticism because when somebody says, well, I don't like this, you know, a part of me goes, I love it. And maybe that's enough. Like maybe it's okay if that person doesn't love it. And then the other thing that happens is also the people who connect with the material really feel like, uh, I, I tend to really feel like I have a strong connection with them because we probably read the same way. Um, and the trick of this is always just, if you're writing for yourself that sort of intently, um, You'd never know if there's going to be enough of an audience who reads similarly enough to you that the book can be financially viable. Uh, and that's sort of the, the, the hard thing about that. But uh, I, I've been fortunate enough that the book has found readers and enough readers that I get to keep writing in this series, that I get to keep going. So my goal is to make sure that I continue to write for myself and, and, and make myself happy with what's going on. Because there do seem to be uh, readers who uh, who are aligned enough with that sort of perspective, the perspective that I have, that uh, it's, it's working out. Uh, I mean, I even do, as a sort of a technique, one of the things I even do when I'm writing is my, the books are all broken up into many scenes for me. I'll actually go, go back once the entire draft is done and I'll, I'm very mercenary and I give each scene a rating out of 10. And if any individual scene falls below an eight on the, how, how often do I personally think this is? How much do I enjoy this scene? Then I rework it until I can get that scene over an eight. So that the entire book, if if it if no one else likes it, I love it, and then that helps me out with all that. That that's a that's a great system. I I, I don't know if I've heard any writers articulate it exactly the way that you did of of rating it and trying to get it above an eight. Um, I'm sure that impacts the the readability and, and the excitement that people find in your books. Well, well, the overarching series, the name of the series is The Burning. And you've said publicly in interviews that the series will be four books is what you're planning. Have you plotted the arc of all four of the books? I have. I'm a big, I'm a big outliner and it just makes the work easier for me. It means that when I'm sitting down each day to write, I know exactly what's meant to happen in that scene. I know the characters who are in the scene. I know all the story beats. And that just that's just as helpful for me. It makes me feel more comfortable in the chair. So I'm not sitting there trying to figure out uh, plot and character arc and world building and then dialogue all in the moment in my head. I, I, that would be really difficult for me. So yeah, I do have all four books loosely plotted out. And then as I get to each new book, I go in and do a super tight um, outline for that. Uh, the outline for books one and two are roughly 100 pages each. And I can tell you, because I'm currently working on book three, that the outline for book three is around 26,000 words. So just a little over 100 pages for the outline for book three. You know how to book flights and hotels. 
all you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. So uh, it's a lot of outlining and a lot of writing there, but I do think that I it makes up for it when I get into the drafting stage and I can move faster. So uh, whether you're a plotter or a planner, from my perspective at least, it's just shifting where you're doing the work. You're either front-loading the work or you're probably back-loading the work. At least that's how I, I think of it. Sure. And, and I'm curious, for those who are listening, who are writers and interested in the, the nuts and bolts of the writing process, can you go a little bit more into kind of describing what that 26,000 words looks like exactly? Yeah. Um, I personally, for whatever reason, um, I, actually, no, I think I do know why I do it. Because I don't know why I do this. But I think I do know why I do this, this the following thing. Um, everything for me is about making sure that the pieces of writing are broken down into small enough little sections that they all feel very doable. Like to think of I'm going to write a 600 page book uh, is sort of a daunting task if you just sort of think of it that way. So one of the first things I do is I break down each book into four acts, not three, because the problem that I had with the three act structure is that it goes, the first act is 25% of your book. The last act is 25% of your book. And the middle where most books start to struggle and slow down is 50% of the entire novel. And that big 50% chunk just felt a little bit too daunting to me. So again, I broke that up into, into two pieces. So I have a four-act structure for all of the books. Uh, there are four books in the overall series. Um, so there's another four-act structure there. Um, and then within each act, I break that down into four more pieces. So it's always about sort of this, this breaking into quarters for me so I can understand each individual piece uh, more clearly and I can wrap my head around what I'm trying to uh, achieve in those individual pieces. Uh, and so it's just a process of breaking down uh, the overall puzzle picture into its individual puzzle pieces so that I can properly paint each piece so that the whole puzzle looks the way I want it. Now, if we could just get George R. R. Martin to, to listen to this uh, interview. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Uh, we need the winds of winter. <laughs> I, hey, I'll be I'll be one of the first people in line for that. We've been waiting. Oh, I'll, I'll be the first. I'll be ahead of you. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious. You talked about earlier, kind of the the motivation behind writing the the first novel, The Rage of Dragons, and and your thought process behind kind of putting your own spin and unique take on 
this Western fantasy tradition that you had grown up reading. I'm curious, what was your writing journey before that? Did you just decide, like, I want to write a, a fantasy novel? And then you started thinking about, um, uh, you know, your spin on it? Or had you done any writing before you sat down and started working on The Rage of Dragons? Yeah. Um, since I was a little kid, and I'm going to go deep into the cliche territory here, but since I was a little kid, the first thing that I'd ever wanted to be once I knew that people had to actually work for a living was to write stories. Uh, I, I fell in love with stories early uh, and wanted to do them uh, from the beginning. Uh, but as I got older, I kind of fell out of that because I thought to myself, this is not something that that, re that reasonable people or real people ever get to do. Like, I didn't understand how someone got to write stories because there was no, you know, you could go to school to be a doctor to a certain extent or a lawyer to a certain extent or a teacher. You can't really go to school or have, get an education that makes you end up, that spits you out on the other end as an author. So I started to kind of give up on, on that career path, especially since I didn't see very many authors who looked like me in the, in the space that I wanted to be in, which was epic fantasy. Um, so again, that starts to make it also feel more impossible because you have nothing that you can look to and point to and say, I can see myself there. Um, so what happened as I sort of fell out of the idea of I'm going to be an author uh, because I just didn't think it was reasonable or possible um, was I started to figure out, well, what can I also do that brings me close to storytelling where there's maybe a bit of a clearer path. Uh, and the path wasn't that clear in the end, but I ended up in filmmaking. Um, and I worked my way up through a camera department on uh, music videos and commercials. I ended up directing music videos for, for years and years, did a couple of short films. And the ultimate goal was to try and become a, um, a movie director. And that was sort of the holy grail there. Uh, but I, I really, one of my smartest friends, uh, when I was telling him about my goals, he sort of gave me a piece of advice that I still hold to to this day. He said, think about the people who are where you want to be and think about the way that you imagine they, they're most likely to live their lives. Do you want that life? And uh, with absolutely no shade to this uh, particular director, because I think they're, they're brilliant and they do amazing work. Uh, Peter Jackson was doing Lord of the Rings at the time uh, when I was really sort of thinking to myself, I'm, I'm going to, I want to be a movie director. And I watched the behind the scenes of Lord of the Rings and I saw that man uh, lose tons of weight, uh, you know, live out of trailers for months on end, be away from family for a long time, even though he works with some of his family members. And it just seemed like that's a really, really a grueling lifestyle. And you have to be deeply into wanting to do that to do that. Um, and also at the same, around the same time, I remember hearing about the fact that Steven Spielberg was trying to raise and struggling to raise money for his next film. And I was like, if Steven Spielberg has to struggle to raise money for his film, and that's a large part of his job is just running around Hollywood trying to get people to give him money just to be able to make the thing, to tell the story. Uh, I, I didn't, I didn't think that that was for me, to be honest. Um, you know, and I don't have many of the sort of uh, the advantages <laughs> that someone like Steven Spielberg has even. So I was, I thought this is uh, an awful path for someone like me to go down. Um, so continued directing music videos, uh, ghostwriting for other writers in terms of treatments for their music videos, and, and, and having to write my own treatments as a music video director as well. Uh, we have to pitch the, the story for music videos um, in, in the field. That's how it works. So I, I've been writing um, professionally uh, for 15, 20, almost 20 years, uh, but in a different capacity. And then, you know, finally, when, it, when I sat down and I decided that the, I was going to write this story, um, I had that as my background. I had a constant love of storytelling. I had about 15, 20 years of, of writing professionally, but in a very different capacity as a bit of that background. 
And I tried to apply everything that I learned over those years into telling uh, the story I really, really, in my heart of hearts, wanted to tell. Gotcha. And so in terms of, I have to ask, in terms of music videos, what is kind of your most famous music video that uh, the listeners may have uh, heard about or remember? Uh, I did a video for Sean Paul called She Doesn't Mind. I've directed a video for Enrique Iglesias called Ayer. Uh, I've directed videos that feature uh, Pusha T and Styles P and DMX. Uh, I've worked with Blow Rida as well. Um, so yeah, <laughs> That's I've, great. Gotten, I've gotten to go around a little bit, uh, travel to a, a few different countries, shot in Australia, uh, in England, uh, throughout America and Canada. So yeah. Great. Well, with your experience thus far with your two novels, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories or novels? Wow. That is a, that's a big one. Um, I think that I'll start by saying this. I've written two books and I'm working on my third. So uh, take whatever I'm about to say with a massive grain of salt, because I am too new at this to really know better. <laughs> but I, I'm going to try and give the piece of advice that my father gave me that really helped. And he was just sort of saying, um, you know, the most important thing is that you finish. Uh, and he was talking about, he wasn't talking about writing books per, per se, but he was talking about just doing work. And he was saying the most important thing is that you get to the end, that you get done. And that if you can get the thing done, then the rest can follow from there. But first, you got to get the thing done. And uh, I think he knew exactly who he, was, who he was talking to and why when he was speaking to me, because I've struggled with that a little bit in the past, just in terms of like really pushing hard to get to that end. And uh, he told me that years and years ago, and it, it has definitely stuck. Uh, it made a difference in my life. And um, again, take it with a grain of salt, but maybe it can make a difference in somebody, somebody else's who's, who's trying to write. Get to the end. Complete the thing. Get it done. That's great advice. Well, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Um, I'm just, I absolutely think that uh, Cast by Isabel Wilkerson is a, a work of near genius. I think that it's the type of book that if you can read that from beginning to end, and not have your perspective on the world changed at least a little bit. Uh, I mean, write me, DM me, whatever, because I would be very surprised to hear that that's the case. That somebody can read that from top to back and not feel a little bit differently about the way they view the world. So that's Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. That's a fantastic nonfiction read. Um, things that I've read that, uh, uh, what else have I, I'm actually in the middle of, this is a bit odd, but I'm in the middle of reading um, a, a PhD dissertation on publishing and marketing and sort of resonance in storytelling. Um, and and that's, that's been a very interesting sort of short and academic type of read. But I, I like that kind of stuff because I like, I like when people think about and break down as best, again, they're able, the way the story works and then the way the story propagates what's put out into the, for lack of a less mercenary term, into the marketplace. Because we cannot separate the art and the craft from the business aspect of these things, because writers don't get to keep writing if, if the business part doesn't allow them enough time and financial support to do the writing. So I, I'm, I always find that stuff very, very interesting to read about. That's great. Well, you've mentioned that you're working on the third novel and the Burning series. Is there a release date set for the third book yet? We're looking at 2022, and I don't believe we have an absolutely firm uh, release date because I'm still in the process of, of getting through the draft. Um, so as, as we get closer to finalizing, uh, me finalizing the draft, I think that we'll lock in that date a little bit more tightly. But uh, 2022, so next year, is the, uh, is the target for that. Great. And where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novels? 
Um, yeah, the place where I tend to feel the most comfortable and I'm probably the most active in terms of replying or, or, or getting to see stuff is Twitter. And on Twitter, I'm just Evan Winter, at Evan Winter on, on there. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Evan Winter, author of the new fantasy novel, The Fires of Vengeance. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Evan, thanks for doing this interview. Jeff, thank you very much for having me. Again, an honor to be here and a pleasure. Thank you. Great. Now stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of The Fires of Vengeance by Evan Winter, narrated by Prentice Onayimi, available from Hachette Audio, wherever audiobooks are sold. Will he die? The voice woke him, returning him to torture. He knew he was in a hospital bed in Citadel City's Guardian Keep, and that his body had been blasted by dragon fire. But Jabari Onai did not know why the goddess would keep him alive in such misery. He tried to open his eyes, and pain roared across his face in scorching waves. His eyelids had melted and fused together, leaving him to peer out at a world as if from behind a field of long grass. He made to speak, to beg Tao or the Sa priestesses and priests to release him from his anguish, but he couldn't make a sound. His throat was too badly burned to manage it. I won't tell you he's going to die, Jabari heard a woman's voice say, but I can't say that he'll live either. The speaker moved toward the foot of his bed, and through the jagged gaps between his burned eyelids, he caught a glimpse of her standing next to Tao. She was a priestess of the Sa Medicinal Order. He's only survived this long because he's noble, she said. Their bodies can withstand more, and they heal faster than us. But the damage that was done to him, it's a miracle he's still breathing. He's a fighter, Tao said. He's always been one, and if you can give him any sort of chance, he'll take up the fight and do his best to win it. We won't give up, she said. Jabari heard a chair being pulled across the floor. It creaked when someone sat in it. I'm here. Jabari, it's Tao, and I'm here. He can't hear you, the priestess said. The pain, we are giving him herbs to help him rest. It's too cruel otherwise. Will it disturb him if I'm here? Tao asked. No, she said. We should all be so lucky to have someone with us at the, at a time like this. Jabari heard footsteps. The priestess was leaving and when the sound of her shoes tapping against the floor faded, Tao leaned over him to take his hand. He did it gently, but it didn't matter. Pain exploded from Jabari's burned fingers, and unable to make a sound or resist, he stared through the holes in his eyelids at his friend's scarred and worried face, hoping beyond hope that Tao could see enough of his eyes to recognize the light of consciousness in them. Tao didn't see. He kept hold of Jabari's hand, and desperate for any relief, Jabari sought refuge in his other senses. He caught the scent of leather, bronze, and earth from Tao, and struggled to pull comfort from the familiar, but his agony made room for nothing but itself. I want you to know you did it, Tao said. You're the man you always wanted to be. You don't need the blood of a greater noble to be an Ingonyama. Not when you have their spirit, their courage. He could hear Tao choking up, 
And that hurt, too. Trabari, no matter what comes, I'll make certain the Omehi remember you for that. There was silence for a while, and though his mind was slow, sluggish from the herbs, in his head, Jabari was screaming. The burns demanded it. It could have been different, ne? If not for the testing, Tao said, whispering. Feels like a thousand lifetimes ago. I just wanted to see you succeed. But when has the world ever cared what Elessa wanted? Jabari would never forget that day. Tao had sparred with that spoiled brat, Kagiso, bloodying the fool in front of guardian counselor Abasi Odili. He'd been stupid enough to injure the petty noble, and Odili, intent on seeing the lesser repaid for the insult, tasked Kellen Okar to remind Tao of his place. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.